Let's pray together. Father, we, we delight in you. Father, we have hearts and minds that are bent towards sin. And yet, Lord, by the work of your Spirit within us, you make us to love you, to rejoice in your goodness and kindness and provision for us. And Lord, as we worship you together, we praise you because this is for our good. That gathering together with the body is what you have made us to do. What you have created us for. What you have ordained for our own growth and sanctification. Lord, I pray that this gathering, that our gathering together each week would be fruitful. And that, Lord, we would not lose heart when it seems as though large, eventful things are not happening in our own lives or in the lives of our church. But, Father, that we would rejoice at your faithful, persistent sanctification. That, Lord, as you make us moment by moment, day by day, more like Jesus Christ, that our hearts would be glad in that. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness from sins that we have in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that our rest and our hope would be in him and in him alone. And as we come to the scriptures today, Father, I pray that Christ would be made evident in these words for us. And that, Lord, even now, you would draw to repentance those among us who do not know him. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Please turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is where we're going to be today. Psalm 23 is likely the most famous and familiar chapter in the entire Bible. This passage is read at most funerals. In fact, I myself typically will read Psalm 23 at the graveside portion of a funeral. Most anyone that you may meet in your day-to-day -day life has likely heard the words of Psalm 23. They may not know that it's the 23rd Psalm, but if you begin and say, the Lord is my shepherd, they probably know what comes next, whether they've heard it in person whether they've seen it on television or in a movie, people know what Psalm 23 says. But the massive exposure has caused a situation where the true nature of Psalm 23 can sort of get lost. Because the truth of the matter is, this is not a psalm that is intended to comfort every hearer. The number of Christians of the number of funerals of non-Christians that I have been to where Psalm 23 was read as a comfort to the family is staggeringly high. But the truth is that these truths are not for everyone. The intention of Psalm 23 is to bring comfort and confidence to the people of God for those whom have Christ as their shepherd. As we consider our text this morning, I want us all to keep that at the forefront of our minds. That Psalm 23 is not a comfort to everyone, but it is specifically a comfort to God's people. Because false hope of God's blessings should never be used for comfort for those who are not Christ's sheep. I think we all need to recognize the incredible damage that is done by making people believe 
that they will receive blessings from the Lord when they won't. When those blessings are only for those who are Christ's sheep. But for those of us who are in Christ, Psalm 23 is an incredible passage that speaks not only of our own human condition, but also to the goodness and kindness of our Savior. So with those things in mind, let's look together at Psalm 23, and we're going to read, to begin with, we're going to read the first four verses. And the first thing we're going to consider this morning is His protection. His protection. It's our first point this morning, if you got one of our sermon listening guides, or if you're just taking notes on your own. But let's read together Psalm 23, verses 1 through 4, where we'll see His protection. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff they comfort me. The opening line of Psalm 23 contains two important realities that we need to address right off the top. The first reality that we find in Psalm 23 is that because this was written by David, we must recognize that he begins this psalm by emphasizing that the Lord is his shepherd. He, Psalm 23 does not say the Lord is our shepherd. He says the Lord is my shepherd. Now, yes, the Lord is the shepherd of all of his people. Psalm 95, the passage I preached my first ever sermon from, says this in verse 7, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. But remember... That the king is the representative of the Lord among the people. And when David became king, if you look at that narrative over in 2 Samuel chapter 5, the people come and this is what happens. They say to David in verse 2, In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. So David, as king, is acting as shepherd of the people. And notice that the Lord, when he refers to David, he refers to David as prince, and the people call him prince because they recognize that God is truly their king. David is just serving in his stead, in a manner of speaking. But David is the shepherd of the people of Israel. Notice the language that they used, led out and brought in. But David, the prince or the king, he recognizes that the Lord is his shepherd. That while he may be the shepherd of the nation of Israel, the Lord is the one who is his shepherd. As we have worked our way through the Psalms, we have spoken of how the welfare of the nation of Israel is bound up in the welfare of the king. This isn't unique to Israel. This is true of most nations of that era. The welfare of the nation is bound up in the welfare of the king. And so this confidence from David that we find in Psalm 23, his confidence in the Lord is of great comfort to his people. Because it is a reminder that the Lord is looking out for both their personal welfare and their national welfare. Now, a word of caution. We should not, and I emphasize should not, all capitals, underlined multiple times, multiple exclamation points. We should not take what the Lord says about Israel and move it over and place it on top of the United States of America. We should not do that. The Bible is not written about America. 
It's not written to say America is the new Israel or anything of that nature. I've heard way too many people try to take promises that the Lord intended for Israel and say, these apply to the nation of America. No. Absolutely not. This is not about America. It's not about the national welfare of America. This is an affirmation of God's constant work in bringing his covenant promises to fulfillment. You see, the Lord, in protecting the king of Israel, is keeping Israel within the covenant that he has made. And the covenant that he has made with them is to, number one, give them a nation, and number two, to bring the Messiah from their line. Those are the promises that are made. And as an aside, we must remember, these are the covenant promises that were made to Abraham. And both of them have been fulfilled. Israel received the promised land, and then they sinned, and then the promised land was taken from them. And they lost the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom was exiled, and then kind of came back, and then the Messiah came, and in A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed, and Israel was scattered to the winds because the covenant promises had been fulfilled in Christ. And so, whatever your beliefs about the modern geopolitical realities of the nation of Israel are, it's important to remember that that is not the same Israel that we're talking about here. Okay? Because as we talked about when we went through the book of Galatians, the church is the true Israel. As Paul says in Romans, not all who are descended from Israel, that is, in the bloodline of Israel, are Israel, but only those who have been circumcised in their heart, who follow after Christ in faith. All right, there's my little aside, and we're going to go back in to Psalm 23. That's the first thing that we glean from Psalm 23, that the Lord is David's shepherd. He is the king's shepherd. The second thing that we can glean from the first line of Psalm 23 is that God's people are sheep. Now, this is not exactly a glowing comparison. I know sometimes we try to think and we think sheep are, are cute and cuddly animals. Here's the truth. Sheep are smelly. They are helpless. And they are not very bright. For example, do you know why a shepherd's staff has the little hook on the end? You know why? Because if a sheep happens to roll over and fall into water, and they're upside down in water, they can't get up. And they're not smart enough to know that they're underwater. So they just carry on breathing like normal and they will literally drown in a foot and a half of water because they're not very intelligent. If it were not for the shepherd, the sheep would face certain destruction. That's the truth. They don't really have any natural defense mechanisms. Sheep don't have sharp teeth. They don't have claws. We never see any of them carrying around a gun or a switchblade. They're helpless. Any predator that wants to can come in and have their way with the sheep. The shepherd is vital in caring for and protecting them from their own disaster and from predators. And so we're sheep. But the extension of us being sheep is that the Lord lowers himself to the lowly, and I mean lowly in a societal stance, the lowly role of shepherd. Shepherds were not highly regarded within society. It was a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week job. And they were out with their sheep, typically. Because they had to go where the pastures were. They had to go where the food was, where the water was. 
It was rare to be able to keep a whole flock of sheep close by to where you lived because they just eat and drink whatever's in front of them. And so you would have to take them to go and find provision. And so the shepherd would have to be with them constantly. And so you see this kind of shown to us in Scripture. When Samuel comes to anoint a king from Jesse's house, where is David, the youngest brother? He has been banished to be out in the field with the sheep. Because he's the youngest. He's the one who doesn't get pick of what job he gets. He gets the worst job. And so he's the shepherd. Shepherds are not well regarded. They stink because they're with stinky sheep all day. They're not, they don't have many good relationships with other people. That's just kind of what they are. They're lowly. And so when you take that into account and you see David saying, the Lord is my shepherd alongside the king being seen as a shepherd. First of all, the king being a shepherd is a reminder that David is not above the other people. And so the same can be said of pastors, which is another word for shepherd. We as under-shepherds, as pastors, we're not better. I'm not better than any of you. I don't stand behind this pulpit because I am better or more righteous or more holy. Yes, the Lord holds me to a higher standard, But the role of pastor is a role of service and care, not a role of superiority. And the Lord has lowered himself to be a shepherd in the same way. It's a a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week job that nobody wants. But the the Lord joyously embraces and fulfills it better than anyone else ever possibly could. And it is precisely because the Lord is our shepherd that the remainder of Psalm 23 is true. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You can take that phrase and add because in front of it and move it into every single line of Psalm 23. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Because the Lord is my shepherd, we have all that we need. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 28, or Matthew 6, 8, excuse me, <clears throat> he says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. One of the great joys in raising children, and I say that very sarcastically, is having to convince them multiple times a day for basically the rest of their life that you love them that you want what is best for them, and that you know more than they do about what is best for them. Dad, I don't want to eat my vegetables. Okay. I want to eat ice cream for dinner. Well, here's the problem with that scenario. Well, Dad, you just don't want me to have what's yummy for dinner. Well, if you want to think of it that way, fine. Children do not know what they need. You know who else doesn't know what they need? Sheep. We are God's children. We are God's sheep. We do not even know what it is that we need. We often, as a part of the human condition, have a problem with conflating what we want as what we, as what we need. We think things we want are things that we need, and they're not. Because the truth of the matter is, in Christ, we have all that we need. That's the truth. And so when David here says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, he is not saying that he prospers materially. Even though he does, let's not not get it twisted, he does prosper materially. But that's not what he's referring to. He is referring to his needs. His needs are met both in a physical and in a spiritual sense. He goes on and he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. One of the things that if you, if you learn about sheep, you learn sheep do not lie down unless they feel completely safe and comfortable. If there is anything that is bothering them, they are on their feet. 
So that means if they recognize that there are predators nearby, if they're hungry or thirsty, if they've got an infestation of bugs or something else like that, they will not lay down. And so if the Lord is David Shepherd, when he says he makes me lie down in green pastures, it's not just about the green pastures part, although that's important. What's most significant is David is saying he makes me feel safe and secure. He makes me feel as though nothing can harm me. So when you consider it in that, in that way, the green pastures represent areas where they can eat without being attacked by predators. And he says that he leads me beside still waters. The Hebrew literally says beside waters of rest. Let Let's go back again to sheep not being very bright. One of the things that would happen is that if they were led to a place that had kind of rushing water, they would want to go where they could fully submerge their noses and mouths into the water to drink. Well, in order to do that, you've got to go into rushing water. And rushing water will sweep their feet out from under them and just carry them away. And they drown and they die. And so where you wanted to take a sheep to drink was a place of still water where they wouldn't be swept away because they don't understand how to not be swept away in those waters. And so again, it's about being safe and secure. Verse 3 of Psalm 23 gives us a window into the true nature of the shepherd's protection for the sheep. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He is giving spiritual provision to his sheep. Spiritual provision. That, that phrase there, restores my soul, the Hebrew there means breath or life. He restores my breath. He restores my life. It has to do with being protected from certain death. This is significant when you think about the fact that it's David who wrote this. One of the themes that we see in David's Psalms when he is faced with trouble is he feels as though he is faced with certain death. Who's going to rescue me from death? Lord, come and save me from destruction. And here in Psalm 23, David says he restores my soul. But not only does the Lord, the shepherd, restore his soul, he is led in paths of righteousness. This, both, this means both being that the Lord is righteous in his dealings toward us, which is important. One of the, the hallmarks of some of the false pagan gods of the ancient Near East is that they were known to be tricksters. They would manipulate. They would try to seek out their own building up by harming their people. Oh, you want more rain? Sacrifice your children. But the Lord, the one true God, Yahweh, deals righteously with his people. He does not trick them or manipulate them. He is honest with them. He is good toward them. But he is also just in his dealings with them. He leads in paths of righteousness. But in addition to the righteousness that the Lord has in dealing with us, the Lord also leads us on straight paths and not crooked ones. Straight paths and not crooked ones. There's a meme that goes around on social media every so often, probably every six or seven months it comes across my timeline again, and it says something to the effect of, I promise you that the Lord did not send you someone else's husband. And it's clever, but the point is, there are many people who get into relationships with someone else's spouse and down the road, when they think the memory of that is faded, they're like, oh, the Lord just brought us together. Well, that's not true. The Lord doesn't do that. 
The Lord leads us on straight paths. The Lord does not force us into sin. The Lord abandons us into our own sin. He leads us in paths of righteousness. This is also significant because we're talking about the blessings of the Lord, the blessings from the shepherd to the sheep. And so we need to recognize here that acting in righteousness, working and living in righteousness is not a burden, but it is considered to be a blessing. It is a blessing to be godly. It is a blessing to be righteous in all of our ways. Now, we understand that under the law, that is not possible. We cannot act righteously because we are incapable of it. And so the blessing of righteousness is that the Lord is the one who leads us in it. So where before I said the Lord does not force us into sin, but abandons us into our sin, it is the Lord who is leading us into righteousness. Think of it like if you're taking your dog for a walk and you're trying to, to walk laps or wherever you are and your dog sees another dog and your dog just wants to go over to the other dog, what do you do? Well, you just kind of tug on the, on the leash a little bit and say, no, 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 don't get distracted, come on. The Lord is leading us in the same kind of way. We so often get distracted by other things and the Lord, through the Holy Spirit within us, is tugging us along saying, no, 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 no. Stay on this path. Stay here with me. Walk in this way. Why? Why does the Lord do these things? Why is he concerned with our own righteousness? Why does this matter to him? He is doing these things for his name's sake. Remember that this is David writing, that the Lord is his shepherd. The king stands in for God among the people. He is the representative of God among the people. And so, David acting righteously, living righteously, is a way for the people to look to him and say, this is how God is. Having recently gone through 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings, we talked a lot about how as the king goes, so go the people. And it's not because they're all going, I really want to be righteous, but the king is being unrighteous, so I guess I got to do what the king's doing. No, it is because we are all wicked in our flesh. And all it takes is for one person in the group to start in wickedness, and we all then feel the freedom to join in. One of the most heartbreaking and upsetting things I've ever heard was when I started going to New Orleans Seminary, I found out that there used to be, on the back end of the campus, a little trailer park area where people could come and bring their travel trailers and they'd pay a little bit of monthly rent and they could park their travel trailers there and that was their housing while they were going to seminary. But that the seminary a few years before I had gotten there had shut it down. And the reason why is because it had basically become a swingers colony. We have Christians who are training for ministry and they're back there swapping partners with one another. And the thing that boggled my mind was who was the first one to suggest that and not get immediately shut down and rebuked. But that's a picture of our corporate unrighteousness, isn't it? That we are all so depraved in our flesh that sometimes it just takes one suggestion and everybody says, I'm in. Let's sin. So we need the Lord to lead us along. And David in particular, the king, needed the Lord to lead him in righteousness for his namesake so that when people looked at him, they saw the righteousness of God and emulated that for themselves. 
But not only is it about the king being a stand-in for God, it also is because the Lord desires for his name to be known. And the people of Israel were supposed to be the picture of God's righteousness for the whole world, and they weren't. But you know who is now? The church. What did Jesus say? You are the light. You are a light, a city on a hill. That's our role, to be the ones that stand in for God in a sinful, fallen, broken world. God leads us in righteousness for his name's sake. We get into verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. As we go through this life, we are in constant danger. We are in constant danger both from within, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7, the things that he wants to do or the things that he does not do and the things that he does not want to do or the things that he does. And then he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Christians, Make no mistake, far too often we are quick to point at the world as the thing that is pressing in on us. But remember what Jesus said, it is not what comes from outside that defiles a person, but what comes from within. That's the truth. The devil doesn't make us do it. We are already sinners. And so as we walk through this life, we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, fighting both within and without. Because the truth is the world does hate us because it hates Christ. The world hates righteousness. We are literally watching our culture in our country move in this direction right before our eyes. It used to be that in the United States of America, Christian morality was the baseline from which people operated. It used to be that immoral things that the Bible shows as immoral used to be scandalous. It used to be scandalous to leave your spouse for someone else. It used to be scandalous to have babies out of wedlock. It used to be scandalous to be a homosexual. Now, these things are celebrated. Now, we have an entire month devoted to being proud of being homosexual. We have moved away from a baseline of Christian morality into a world that hates Christian morality. Every day there are new reports of people who are fired from their jobs because they, were, they will not use preferred pronouns or, as we would rightly understand it, lying. Every day we face more and more hatred from the world simply for standing upon biblical morality. And so the imagery that is used in Psalm 23 has to do with walking through the valley looking for a new place to be. But as you walk through the valley, there are these dark areas, these shadows. And in the shadows, anything can be hiding. Robbers, predators, anything can be there. When I was a young man, I was very afraid of the dark. Because at a very, very young age, I was probably James's age, maybe even younger, we had gone over to my grandparents' house, and a cousin of mine, who was a guy that enjoyed scaring and pulling pranks that were not good-natured pranks, they were mean pranks. And in my grandparents' house, when you come through the door, there's a little foyer, and to the right, there's a long hallway, and they always kept the lights off and the door shut down there. And it was evening time, we came in, 
And I was the first one through the door. And as I came around the corner, I was, the living room was on this side and the dark hallway was here. And as I came in, right as I went to turn the corner, I heard a noise behind me and I turn around and I didn't know it was him. I just saw a monster. He was wearing a very frightening mask and he comes screaming down at me out of the dark hallway. It was terrifying. I didn't know he was there. He was hiding in the dark. Now, thankfully, he didn't mean to do me harm. He just scared me. And I had a persistent fear of the dark ever since then. But he could have hid there and meant to do me harm. The dark is frightening for a reason. Because we don't know what's there. And as we walk through this life, we are faced with constant danger because the world despises our Lord. And because of that, they despise us as well. But do we fear? No. We don't fear. Because we have the protection of the Good Shepherd. He is with us in the danger. Jesus doesn't stand on the mountaintop and send us through the valley alone and say, I'll meet you on the other side. Just as the shepherd doesn't. The shepherd doesn't send the sheep into the valley and say, figure it out, guys. He's with them. But not only is he with us, his rod and his staff comfort us. His weapons of protection and provision are there to keep us safe. He's not just showing up and saying, now, 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 wolves, stay away. He's got a club with which to beat them. And those weapons comfort us, which is a significant thing because these weapons are representative of the Lord's judgment against sin that was once directed toward us. At one time, those weapons would be used against us. But those weapons are now a shield for us against wickedness. And not necessarily in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. And one of the things that you see here is that there is a lot of overlap between his protection and then what we see in verses 5 and 6, which is his provision. His provision. Let's read 5 and 6 of Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Because we are protected, the Lord prepares a feast for us. And he does this in the presence of our enemies. This is an interesting thing to consider. Typically, when you're going to have a feast, you're going to do it somewhere that is safe and protected. But the Lord prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Everyone who means to do us harm sees the good care of God for his people. This is representative of the blessings of the presence of God with us in the midst of our walk through this life. And this is more than just a meal. This is a picture of fellowship and love that the Lord has for us. The Lord does not only see us as helpless, dumb sheep. He sees us as his friends. He cares for us as his friends. He says, you anoint my head with oil. Now, immediately our minds are drawn to the anointing that was given to David as king, right? Well, that's not the kind of anointing that this is. This is one of the disadvantages of reading in English what was originally written in Hebrew. This is a different kind of anointing. It's more closely related with the word for fat, as in the fat part of the meat, as in the most flavorful, best part of the meat. Amen, Brother Scott? Eli, you don't know what you're talking about. When taken alongside the reference to the overflowing cup, what it likely means is, is it probably has something to do with abundance. As in, 
This food is so rich that it has covered my face with grease. That's the idea here. It's like getting some really good fried chicken. Everybody knows the best fried chicken turns your napkin clear. Amen? It is greasy as all get out. And when you eat it, your hands are greasy, your face is greasy. If you have a beard, your beard is nice and shiny. That's the imagery that happens here. When he is saying, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows, he's using a word picture linked with anointing him as king and showing preference to him, but also with this imagery of a very luxurious meal. The kind of meal that they didn't often get to have. They ate the lean cuts. They didn't eat meat very often. But here they're saying, you're, you're eating the fatty meat, the greasy kind. Your head is anointed with oil. Your cup is literally overflowing. You cannot outlast the provision of God. That's the imagery that's being used here. And he continues on and he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That phrase is so incredible when you really recognize what it's saying. Because he's not just saying, God's going to show you goodness and mercy. What he's saying is, in keeping with the imagery of sheep, sheep wander off. Like I said, they will eat whatever's in front of them. And so if one sheep is kind of turned away from the rest of the flock and he's eating grass, he's just going to keep eating grass and keep walking and keep eating grass until before he knows that he's all by himself somewhere. We are like that sheep. We veer away from passive righteousness sometimes. But do you know what the Lord does? His goodness and his mercy follow us. They persist alongside us. Even though we don't deserve that, even though we deserve his judgment, the Lord's kindness and goodness and mercy persist with us. They follow us all the days of our life. Even when we go astray, his goodness and mercy do not depart from us because we are his sheep. Jesus spoke about this. A shepherd having a hundred sheep would leave the 99 and go find the one. That is the goodness and mercy of God that follows us all the days of our life. But the most significant provision that we are given, more significant than a great feast, more significant than an overflowing cup, more significant than his protection in the valley of the shadow of death is what we find in the very last line. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Brothers and sisters, the greatest gift that we are given is the presence of God forever. That's the greatest thing that we could ever be given. We should not look at the first five and a half verses of Psalm 23 and say, man, God surely gives me good gifts and ignore the last one. Because the last one is better than all of them. Because if you die right now and you know Jesus, you are ushered into the presence of God for all eternity. Right now. And what an incredible blessing that is. As the author of Hebrews says, we can enter into the throne of God. We can come to the throne of God with confidence. We don't fear God's judgment. He embraces us as friends because he loves us. This is the reality for those who are God's sheep. He is with us now as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. 
and he is with us forever. We are with him now and we will be with him always. In John's gospel, Jesus says something that would have immediately drawn the minds of his hearers to Psalm 23 without him having to explicitly say it. And so if you want to, you can turn over to John 10 or you can just listen closely. But I want you to listen to what Jesus says here. Starting in verse 11 of John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he is a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Jesus just says, I'm the good shepherd. Which for all of these Jews who had memorized scripture from the days of their youth, they would have immediately thought of Psalm 20. And here's Jesus saying, when David said, the Lord is my shepherd, that's me. It's me. I am the one. I am the one who leads beside still waters. I am the one who makes you lie down in green pastures. I am the one who restores your soul. And he says things to them that tied the entirety of the Old Testament together. First of all, he tells them that there are other sheep who are not of this fold. In other words, he's saying, I have sheep who are not Jews. I have people who are not of Abraham's line. And I am going to gather them together, and there is going to be one flock, not two flocks, one flock and one shepherd. And then he says that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The Old Testament, as we saw last week in Psalm 22, makes explicitly clear that the Messiah will die to redeem his people. And here is Jesus saying, not just Psalm 23 is about me, but also Psalm 22. And all the other parts of the Old Testament that speak of the Messiah, all the words of Moses and the prophets, they are about me. And so when we speak of the shepherd who cares for his flock, who leads them in paths of righteousness, we are speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who provides for and protects his people. But this is only true for his sheep. A little bit earlier in, in John chapter 10, verses 2 through 4, we find this. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes out before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. What does it mean? to be a part of the flock of Jesus? What does it look like for Jesus to be your shepherd? Well, it looks like knowing his voice and following him. That's what it looks like. It doesn't look like praying a prayer. It doesn't look like getting dunked in a tank of water. It looks like a long obedience in the same direction. It looks like what Jesus referenced in the parable of the sower. 
where you have one group that is very evidently not his people. But then you have two groups that appear to be his people, but they're not. And it's not until the fourth group that we find the ones who are his people. And how do we know? Because they grow and they bear fruit. That's what it means to be God's people. That's what it means to be a part of the flock of the good shepherd. Is to know and believe and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider the responses that the crowd had to what Jesus said. Many of them said that he was demonic and was insane. And they rejected what he had to say. But others, I want you to listen to what they said. These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Some of them recognized Jesus by his words and by his works. These things were given to us that we would know that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so today, today the calling upon all of us is to ask ourselves, do we know his voice and do we follow him? Do we truly follow after the good shepherd? And if you are here today and you can't say that, if you're here today and you say, I don't, I don't know how to answer that question. I don't know if I really do know Jesus. Today can be the day that you know him. Today can be the day that you repent of your sins and believe the gospel. That can be today. But for those of us here who know the Lord, whether you've known him for a week or you've known him for 70 years, the word for us is to trust in him, to follow him, because he is with us, to rejoice in the fact that goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our lives because Christ is our shepherd and he is with us always. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who is our shepherd. The one whom Psalm 23 is written about. I pray, Lord, that we would find great hope and comfort in these words. That, Lord, we would obey your word because Christ is worthy. And I pray, Lord, for any here who don't know him, that they would repent and believe the gospel today. Help us, Lord, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death to fear no evil because Christ is with us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.